Up to this point in the retreat, we've mostly been talking about how to go about practice. The skillful understanding, the supportive attitudes, wholesome states of mind, tools that we might apply, all of which might help us to uh, progress in the work that we're doing here. And all of that we hope we found, you've found uh, helpful as you've been here. So we wanted to talk tonight a little bit more about where is it all leading? <laughs> where is the insight in the Insight Meditation Society? So that's what I'd like to speak a little bit about tonight. The last four lines of the Diamond Sutra say this, thus shall you think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream. And these lines for, for me and for many practitioners over the centuries have really captured the essence of insight and wisdom and what we mean by that. Not just accepting on an intellectual level, you know, oh yeah, everything is so ephemeral, so unreliable, so empty, but having that actual experience in this moment that yes, this is the truth of our experience, the truth of our existence. And what we find, what again, generations of practitioners doing just exactly what we're doing here have found over the centuries is that the truth tends to show itself in three different ways or from three different points of view, three different perspectives which are not really separate understandings, but they're like facets of a jewel. They're different views into the same single truth. In Pali, these three perspectives are called anicca, dukkha, and anatta, which together are called the three universal characteristics of experience. So anicca, the first one, is usually translated as impermanence. It's the transience the ephemerality, the fleetingness of experience. The second one, dukkha, is usually translated as suffering. But really it's more of, sometimes we call it unsatisfactoriness, which is a little bit of a mouthful. But the inability of experience to really provide any lasting satisfaction. And the insecurity, the vulnerability that comes along with that. The third one, anatta, is often given the somewhat cryptic translation of no-self or non-self, which can seem a little impenetrable. But it's, the, it's capturing this characteristic of impersonality or uncontrollability or emptiness, emptiness of self. So through meditation, we come to see these aspects of reality for ourselves. And seeing this is what we mean by insight as in the Insight Meditation Society, or doing insight practice, or coming on an insight meditation retreat. So in this sense, insight doesn't just refer to anything or everything that we might experience on a retreat like this. In fact, we usually realize or gain insight into all sorts of things in the course of our practice, both on the cushion and off just in the course of our daily lives practice, however we do that when we're home. 
So we realize things about ourselves, about our past history, about our psychological conditioning, about others and their past history and their psychological conditioning, about human nature and the world in general, all of which can be very helpful, very helpful for living a more skillful, a less harmful, and a happier life in the world. But these things aren't actually insight in this very particular, somewhat technical sense that we use it here. What we call vipassana. That term vipassana uh, comes from the root uh, v and pasana in Pali. And pasana is just simply seeing. The v part is a little trickier, but it has the sense of variety or different ways, a multitude of ways. So we might think of vipassana as seeing in different ways, seeing in different angles, seeing from the perspective of insight, getting a different perspective, a different viewpoint on our lives, different from our ordinary viewpoint. We generally start off on the path with what we call here in the West psychological insight. And we can get lots of great insight here. I often tell the story about on my first, the first three-month retreat that I sat here way back when was um, just before I got married. <laughs> I had made the decision to leave my job, take a sabbatical from my career, take a sabbatical from my relationship, and do, sit a three-month retreat, spend a little time in Asia, kind of get that out of my system before I settled down to marriage and children, uh, having no idea <laughs> where it was going to lead. <laughs> but that's a whole other story. But, um, you know, when I came on that three-month retreat, it's kind of in the throes of the wedding planning, which any of you who have gotten married, especially the women, especially if you're a woman with a mother, <laughs> know it can be a somewhat grueling experience, as it was for me. And, you know, I thought I'd spend some of that time just kind of working through some of the things that had come up in the course of the wedding planning, you know, conflicts with my partner, conflicts with my parents, you know, just various things. Um, and I did get some insight into those things, you know, in the, in the, just in the course of the stillness and the quiet here, you know, I was able to get more in touch with my feelings. I was able to see things, you know, with a little clearer eye, um, not just about, you know, the particular details of the wedding, but just about, you know, my changing relationship at that point in my life, you know, be taking on a new identity as a, as a wife and a partner, uh, letting go somewhat of my identity as a daughter to my, to my shifting alliances. So that was very, very useful, you know, and lots of that stuff can come up in the course of retreat, and it's not that that's not useful in our lives. And we'll probably need to, you know, come back to this terrain of kind of grappling with the issues in our lives. That was a relatively, you know, low investment one, you know, in, in the scheme of things that can come up. Some of the things that can, can come up can be quite difficult, you know, really difficult, really painful psychological knots. Uh, you know, remnants of past experiences or past conditioning. And we'll probably need to work through those as we walk this path. That's part of walking the path. It's not that, you know, we kind of grapple with all of our emotional or psychological issues like up front, you know, we work it all out <laughs> and then we get onto enlightenment. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a dance, it's a process. There's various times at which uh, we work more on the psychological side of things and then other sides when we work, times when we work more on the the insight, the wisdom side of things. But if we're persistent and we're patient in our practice, then at some point we do move beyond the personal stories, beyond the personal dramas and knots. 
So it's this process of moving from kind of the very specific, very personal challenges of our life, conditions of our life, to the more general, the more universal aspects of life for all of us. At some point, we do open that door that I was talking about the last time I spoke here, that door to insight. So we eventually, eventually too, we discover that these insights, these three characteristics that we get a glimpse of are also a door, or three doors. They're sometimes called the three doorways to awakening because beyond them lies an even deeper truth, the deepest truth of what is beyond change, what is beyond space and beyond time, what's sometimes called the deathless or the unconditioned or nibbana, nirvana. And once we get a glimpse of that, then things will never be the same again. So we can think of insight, the, the time in our practice when we are examining and learning about the three universal characteristics of experience as kind of the middle terrain on the path. It's, a, it's the area of practice that's sandwiched in between our ordinary way of relating and this very deep transcendent understanding. Insight is the process by which we translate the Buddha's teachings from secondhand knowledge, things that we've heard, things that we've read, things that we've thought about, into something that we know for ourselves, into personal, personal knowledge, direct knowledge, which is the only way that the teachings can really help us to suffer less until we actually see the Dharma, we actually see the truth of things up close and personal in our own experience for ourselves, then they can only really be at most a good idea, a nice idea. I love the transmission that Sharon Salzberg passes on from her teacher Manindra who told her, you know, the Buddha's enlightenment solved his problem. <laughs> Now you have to solve your problem, which is what we're all doing here. You know, whether you think about it in those terms or not, whether you believe it or not, this is what we're doing, just through the simple practice of mindfulness. This is how it happens. So we come here, we make our best effort, we try to follow the instructions, and at some point, lo and behold, it works. It, the energy balances out, you know, we hit a stride, we get into a rhythm. We're not working too hard, we're not working too light. We find a balance. You know, we mobilize our mindfulness, remind ourselves to come back to the present moment over and over and over again until some momentum builds. And it does become more natural for the mind to rest in the present moment, to come back to it. We don't have to work at it so hard in every single moment. The concentration grows and the mind actually stays connected with the present moment for some period of time, you know, shorter or longer. And miracle of miracles, you know, for, for some periods of time, the hindrances actually loosen up a little bit. The mind is less tormented. There are some periods of time when the sleepiness, the restlessness, all the obsessions of mind are not so distracting. Either they recede, or if they're still there, there's a willingness and ability to just be with them in the moment as what they are, rather than getting totally drawn off into them. And this doesn't have to be you know, all day long, unremitting mindfulness, unremitting awareness. It can, talk, it can be just maybe, you know, we're talking about a few breaths, 
or just maybe half a breath. Just some period of time when we're connecting continuously with the present moment. And those times may string together. So we may have, every once in a while, half a sitting or a walking period when the mind's more or less present. It doesn't have to be continuously present every single moment, but more or less there, mostly. Maybe a couple of hours like that, maybe even sometimes a day that's mostly like that. However long it is that we're in that place of continuous awareness, that's when the door to insight can open. And it can just be very briefly, just it kind of opens and then it closes, um, which is usually how it is at first. Our first glimpses into insight are usually just very brief, but they can be very powerful. They don't have to go on and on and on to have a real effect on the mind. What we see when we first go through that door of insight is very straightforward. It's just simply knowing what is actually happening, (laughs) which seems so simple, but as we all know, is very difficult to actually connect with. It's usually hidden from view by all of our ideas and our concepts and our stories. And lately, uh, some of you have heard this in groups. I've been using the not so elegant analogy of uh, cooking ramen noodles (laughs) to illustrate this transition that happens in the mind into the realm of insight. So when we first open up a package of ramen noodles, you know, it's this hard block. (laughs) I don't know how they get it this way, but it's just this mass of congealed, you know, hard noodles. And you can see that it's made up of lots of strands, but there's no way you could like extract one single strand. They're all melded together. You know, it's one congealed mass but then you pour in the boiling water (laughs) and voila, you know, they all soften up. They start to come apart. You know, you could reach in with your fork if you wanted to and pull out just one single strand, see what it looked like. And our initial entry into insight is a lot like this. You know, it's the boiling water that loosens up the strands of experience so that we can see, you know, there's a strand of movement. There's a strand of tingling. There's a strand of burning. There's a strand of unpleasant feeling, a strand of pleasant feeling, a strand of thinking, a strand of emotion. All of these individual ingredients that go in to make up what we call the experience of the present moment. So when we pass through that door of insight, we can finally see each of those strands for what it is, see it as it is, clearly. And this clarity, this non-confusion about what is actually happening has a name. In the traditional teachings, it's called Nama Rupa Parichedinyana. Nama Rupa Parichedinyana. Which is just a fancy way of saying, knowing what's actually going on in the mind and body in the present moment. Knowing what the specific characteristics are of the moment. We use this term specific characteristics to refer to what is the particular flavor of this moment. You know, is it heat, is it cold? Is it pressure, is it lightness? Is it pleasure, is it pain? whatever it might be, the specific quality of the moment in the body and the mind. So in this place, we can just simply know each sensation as it is, whatever it is, each activity of the mind as it is, whatever it is. And we can see that sensation in the body, experience in the physical senses is one thing, and mental activity, the things that the mind gets up to, is another thing. There are different strands of experience. So we start to see clearly at this point as well 
the relationships between the moments of experience. So we can see you know, there's certain sensations in the body, and then the mind kicks in with a thought about them, which then maybe triggers a certain emotion, which then also might trigger other sensations in the body. Because of the continuity of awareness, we can start to see this experience has led to this one, which has led to this one, which has led to this one. They're each their own experience. They're distinct strands of experience, but they're related, and we can see how they're related. And again, this is not in any way an intellectual understanding. You know, it's not the same as sitting and analyzing, oh, okay, you know, looking back over experience, I can kind of analyze how I had this string of experiences and how they were related. It's really seeing directly in the moment each thing as it arises, what its quality is, how it's linked to the experiences around it in time. And also, with that clarity, getting that this is all that's happening. <laughs> you know, we sit up here and we talk about how, you know, there's the six sense doors, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and cognizing, mental activity. And that's really all that ever happens. And we can kind of get that as an idea. But once we enter into insight, we really see that. This is true. This is all that's going on. There's nothing else that's going on here. And it's nothing that we haven't noticed, you know, thousands of times before as we sit here, but the mind is really taking it in, taking it in with a different quality, without confusion, without that usual overlay of concepts and ideas. And some of you have been experiencing this, probably most of you have experienced this in at least some moments. You know, maybe we're sitting and, you know, if we use the breath as an object, we're following the breath, and suddenly we notice that the sensations of the breathing are one thing, and the mind that's noting or knowing those sensations is something else. One is a physical experience, has certain qualities, and one is a mental experience, has certain qualities. And they're two distinct strands of experience. They're not all melded together anymore. They're, they've separated out. Or maybe we're out walking, experiencing the feelings of the body, the air on the body, the sounds around us, and maybe that inner narrator is chattering, chattering away, oh, now you're taking a step, and I can really feel the pressure on the ground, and you know, the whole narrative of what's going on, the blow-by-blow blow of the walking. And at some point, suddenly, it just really becomes clear, okay, that physical experience of the body is one thing, and that narrating of the mind is another thing. One's a physical experience, one's a mental experience. They're related. The physical is giving rise to the mental, but they're two distinct strands of experience. So we take that in, and that becomes the practice, seeing things in that way, noticing the specific qualities of mind and body from moment to moment to moment, until at some point the mind shifts yet again. And this is really a mystery. <laughs> this is a mysterious part of the process, why this happens, when this happens. But out of this place of seeing clearly the specific experiences of the moment, at some point the mind adjusts itself to take in the bigger picture of what's going on, beyond just the particulars of the moment. And this is very much like adjusting the focus on a camera, you know, going from a, a real close-up where we're taking in a lot of detail to really panning out to a wide-angle view, seeing the big picture. And the three universal characteristics start to come to, into view, the common characteristics of every experience, whatever its specific details might be. 
we can start to see the breathtaking impermanence of everything, everything that comes up. We can start to see their uncontrollability. They come in uninvited, they go uninvited. We can start, start to see their inability to really satisfy us. Even the nicest ones just don't last. And all of these deeper insights become accessible only when we can continuously connect with what's really happening in the present moment. For many of us, the first universal characteristic that shows itself is impermanence. This is kind of an easy in to insight, a Nietzsche. Of course, there's the ordinary level of impermanence that we're all familiar with. You know, things change. The seasons pass, the years pass, the planet warms, we lose things, they get broken, people get old and sick and they die. And all of us know this, even young children. Um, and my son, who's just turned three, has just started to pick up on this. There's this one little dump truck <laughs> toy that he has that he just loves. And he left it at a friend's house a little while ago, earlier in the summer, and we haven't been able to get it back yet. And this has really made an impression on him. You know, he'll say to me from time to time, you know, uh, my yellow truck, it's my friend's house. Not, not in the sense of, like, go and get it back for me right now, <laughs> although that may come later, but just in the sense of, like, trying to make sense. Okay, I had it. It was here with me, and now it's not. It's gone. You know, it's like he's kind of taking that in. So we get that very young. You know, there's no need to meditate to understand this level of impermanence. Although there still may be the feeling there, kind of the felt sense that, oh, it's not really going to happen to me. You know, it's like we all know it intellectually, but still there can be a lot of denial there, especially about the big things, about aging, about death, our own or that of those close to us. So the Buddha encouraged us to confront ordinary impermanence through reflection, as part of skillful effort, part of paving the way to productive meditation, clearing the mind from impediments. So he told us to you know, meditate on loss, to reflect on loss, to reflect on aging, to reflect on death. This was a big part of what he taught. You know, all of these types of contemplations designed to really bring us face to face with the fact of just ordinary impermanence, that we lose things, we get old, we die. In modern Western culture, this might also include what we call grief work, you know, or various forms of psychotherapy uh, that are out there, coming to terms with our own personal losses, our own disappointments, our own vulnerabilities. And some of us come to meditation to help with that grieving process, and it can be a great help on that, on that path when it's done skillfully. On the other hand, we might also come to this practice with a little bit of an agenda to avoid grieving, to avoid dealing with the or just the ordinary level of loss and change, with some kind of idea that maybe if we can go straight to kind of universal truth and awakening, we can skip over all the messy personal stuff that we, that's there inside of our conditioning. So we need to keep an eye out for that. It tends not to work. The practice of the Brahma Viharas is also really helpful, you know, in, in this area and coping with, you know, the pain of our personal histories. When we really look squarely at the truth of change in the ordinary world, you know, it only makes sense to wish well 
for ourselves and all of our fellow beings. It only makes sense to cherish joy and happiness in the world, wherever it arises. It only makes sense for the heart to go out with compassion to ourselves or to others when they're suffering. Because we're all stuck in this flawed world together. And it also only makes sense to look on all of the change and the loss with equanimity. Because we can see that this is the inescapable truth of everyone's life. And we can't make it otherwise, not for ourselves and not for anyone else. There's a story that I often tell from the, the suttas, the story of Kisa Gotami, who was a woman uh, who lived in the time of the Buddha. She was a woman from his clan. Gotami is the, the clan name of the Buddha and his other family members. And she got the nickname of uh, Kisa Gotami, which means thin, because she was so thin and frail. She hadn't, uh, she'd been malnourished, I guess, as a child. and was just very delicate. And when she came of age and got married, um, she was still in quite poor health, and it took some time for her to be able to get pregnant and have a child. And at that time, um, much as today, in modern India, a woman's value is really uh, rested on her ability to produce a male heir. And she, for a long time, she was treated with contempt by her in-laws, you know, treated as very, uh, really little more than a slave. And she longed desperately for a son. And after many years, eventually, she did give birth to the longed-for son who she doted on. You know, he was her pride and joy. And uh, she also became much more important than the family. She was given a lot more respect, gained some power and authority within the family. But to everyone's dismay, the little boy got sick when he was a toddler, when he was just beginning to be able to run about and play. And he died. And Kisa Gotemi, she just couldn't face this. She just could not take this blow. And she really went out of her mind from the shock and the grief. She just couldn't admit that the child was dead. She was in a stage of just a state of just really extreme denial. She kept insisting that he was just very ill and she just needed to find the right medicine for him to bring him back to health. So she carried the child around her on her hip and went about the village from door to door, you know, knocking on the doors of her neighbors, her relations, asking if anyone uh, knew of some medicine that would help her child. Which was, you know, as we can imagine, just a really pathetic sight. And someone eventually directed her to the Buddha, who was teaching nearby. You know, they said, here's this great teacher, and go see him. He'll know how to help you. And when she found the Buddha, she was still carrying her little son's body on her hip. And she went to him and asked him for help. And the Buddha said, I can help you, but first you must bring me a mustard seed. At which she was elated, because this is a very common cooking ingredient. You know, everybody had mustard seeds in their house. So Kisa Gotemi was overjoyed. She said, I'll be right back with a mustard seed. But the Buddha stopped her and said, wait, there's one caveat. The mustard seed has to come from a house where no one has died. This didn't deter Kisa Gotemi too much. She still set off very joyfully, going from door to door. And people were more than willing to give her a mustard seed. But when she asked them if anyone had died in the house, it was always the same story. You know, oh, yeah, my father last year, or my mother, or my son, or my daughter, my brother, my sister, my husband, my wife. And gradually, as she wandered through the village, 
you know, going from house to house, she began to realize that all who are born must die. That said that this was what she uttered when she came to this realization. No village law is this, no city law, no law for this clan or for that one alone. For the whole world and for the gods too, this is the law, all is impermanent. And with this, she came back to her senses and was finally able to let go of her son. She was able to take him to the cemetery in the village so that what needed to be done could be done. And then she went back to the Buddha. She had gotten the truth of impermanence so deeply that an unshakable resolve arose in her to find a way to transcend it. And the Buddha said to her when she came to him again, go to me, did you collect the mustard seed? And she replied that this is the work of the little mustard seed. And she asked him for ordination into the order of the nuns. And she practiced very diligently and with great effort and in time became one of the arahants, a fully enlightened being, free from all suffering. So understanding and acceptance of change and loss on just the ordinary level is very important. It's very helpful in life. But when we pass through the door into the realm of insight, we begin to see that there's a whole other dimension to impermanence, one that goes far, far beyond just the ordinary level that we're all familiar with. So in Kisa Gotami's story, her overcoming of denial was really just the beginning. It was the launching point for her, as it is for many of us. Getting impermanence on that level didn't remove her suffering. It just got her to a place of enough clarity, enough acceptance, where she could realize that she needed to look deeper. There was more to be done. She got to a place where she could draw enough strength and enough motivation to do that deeper work. And in time, she did realize impermanence on deeper levels and attain to real peace and freedom. So through meditation, we can come to an understanding of impermanence that goes beyond what's obvious on the everyday level. And we do this just through mindfulness, just through observing what we're experiencing, just as we're all doing here. So it's not like we need to go looking around for impermanence. It's not like we need to be scanning through our experience, you know, looking to see, okay, where's the impermanence? Can I find it? Can I get a handle on it? It doesn't work like that. The truth of impermanence will present itself very naturally, very organically, because it's the truth. <laughs> you know, it's there. It's there in experience. It just needs the necessary conditions and causes for it to emerge and reveal itself. When we first start to meditate, you know, at the beginning of a retreat like this, even if we're doing quite a bit of meditation outside, when we, when we plunge into intensive meditation like this, uh, the practice really gains a lot more concentration, a lot more momentum, as we've been speaking about. So at the beginning of the retreat, we mostly just catch the middle of things. And many of you report this, or many of you notice this about the dynamics here. You know, so maybe we don't see the pain in the knee until it's really already quite strong. <laughs> or we don't catch the train of thought until really we're quite a ways into the story. And then once we do notice it, 
something else will usually come along to distract us or catch our attention and take it away from that experience before we see the end of it. So we mostly are just kind of catching the peaks of the experiences, you know, the, you know, the high points when they're most prominent, most obvious, most strong. So in that place in practice, we can't really pick up on impermanence. We're just catching the middles of things. But with practice, as more uh, momentum builds, and we can start to be able to stay with the experiences longer, then we start to be able to see the endings of things. So maybe we still might not catch that pain or that thought train until it's well underway, but then we might be able to track along with it, follow along with it, until we actually see it disappear. So the phase where we're seeing the, the, the middles and then the, the trailing off, the endings of things. And some of you are reporting this as well. With more practice, with more continuity, with more momentum then, Finally, at some point, we start to be able to actually catch things as they arise. We start to be able to see, actually see the beginning, the middle, and the end of an experience. And this is a wonderful point in meditation. This is a point in the practice where we start to really feel like we're meditating. We feel like we're being mindful. So we can see you know, that pain in the knee actually start to, to form and coalesce. We can see it run its course, and then we can see it dissipate for whatever reason. Or we can see that thought train in the mind just start to bubble up from the subconscious and kind of take form, run its course, and then disappear in whatever way it does. And this is usually the point at which we start to really get the direct truth of impermanence. The impermanence that's there beyond the ordinary level. Experiences start to become like a parade passing by. I have this image uh, when my daughter was younger, before my son was born, uh, just she and I, the two of us, went to go see uh, the President's Day Parade in Old Town Alexandria in Virginia, which is kind of this historic area with a lot of old houses, and they have a, a parade there every President's Day with a lot of kind of colonial reenactors and all that sort of thing. So we found a spot near the viewing platform, you know, where all the VIPs sit, and there were lots of people around. It was really crowded, so we couldn't see too much in either direction. You know, we couldn't really see down to where uh, the the parade was coming from, and we couldn't really see down to the end where it was finishing up either. It was a long stretch. But each group of people, you know, whatever, wherever they were from, whatever they were doing, they would come down the parade route, and then they'd do their little spiel, you know, in front of the VIP stand, put on their super special performance there, and then they'd continue on their way. And some things were really great, you know, there were some great troops of, like, ethnic dancers that just did, you know, these wonderful costumes, and my daughter really loves dancing, so she would just love these displays of really exciting dance. And she also really liked the Shriners cars, you know, those little tiny cars with the guys with the hats, and they drive around. She thought that was just just the, the ultimate thing. So there are things that we loved. There were things that were just like so-so, you know, like there's a constant stream of like just high school bands doing kind of the same thing over and over again. You know, they're okay, but not so exciting. And then there was some things that were not such a big hit. Like there was a, a group of reenactors that came down with a bunch of cannons and they fired off like these half a dozen like colonial cannons right in front of the VIP stand which was a lot of noise and smoke and my daughter just absolutely hated it. When is it going to end? But whatever you know was coming down the parade route whether it was good, bad, or indifferent you know there we were. <laughs> we were watching the parade. You know we had to get through it you know more or less happily you know however we could and then let it go. You know, we couldn't make the things that we liked last longer. We couldn't make the things that we hated go away any faster. 
it was a parade and we were just spectators. And when we start to see this deeper level of impermanence, wisdom grows and we get that life is really like this. You know, you see this in your practice, right? It's really a parade. The sensations, the thoughts, the feelings, you know, they all come down the channel, down the parade route, they do their thing, and then they move on when it's their time. And it's really just pointless to try to hang on to them or to hurry them along because they're just doing their thing. They're doing their shtick, whatever it is, their spiel. And we're really just along for the ride most of the time. So when we get this, we can kind of relax some, just enjoy the parade or not enjoy the parade as the case may be. But in any event, stop struggling so much to try to control it where there's really no possibility for control because we realize that all of these experiences are just following their impermanent nature. One teacher said, true wisdom lies not in letting go, but in realizing that everything is going anyway. <laughs> we start to get this. Everything's going anyway. <laughs> and again, this level of seeing impermanence usually starts with just, just a brief glimpse. Maybe just, to, just get a few seconds of really seeing this. But that one moment or moments can be incredibly powerful. It really punctures our ideas that we might have about the solidity of things, about the permanence of things. We don't really see the world in the same way again. Even after that insight, the, the direct seeing of it has passed, what we've learned from it, that stays. We can't unlearn that. We can't unknow what we've seen. And with continued practice, this level of insight matures, it stabilizes, it may come for longer periods of time. We get to see it more and more clearly, more and more forcefully. Until over time, there's a critical mass of evidence that builds up. You know, and we just can't avoid the truth anymore. We've seen so much of it that it becomes internalized. It becomes something that we know in our bones, you know, in our cells. The same way we, as we know the law of gravity, you know, we don't think about it when we take a step that our foot is going to land on the ground. We just know. And the understanding of impermanence can become like this over time with practice. That even when we're not thinking about it, there's that understanding there. There's the knowing of it. But even beyond this, there's still a deeper level of seeing impermanence. <clears throat> So when the insight into impermanence first really activates, you know, we're clearly seeing the, the beginning, the arising, and then the progress, the middle, and then the end, the fading away of experience. But still there's a sense of things having some kind of finite duration. Like they're moving quickly, you know, they come, they go, but there's some period of time at which they're actually there. <laughs> you know, the, the parade float is in front of us for a certain amount of time, and we can look at it. So maybe, you know, there's the breath, you know, the breath comes and the breath goes, but it's still a breath. It has some duration. There's this really uh, fascinating research into attention that some of you may know about that in a healthy brain, the period of time that the human mind can resolve uh, in our ordinary lives is about half a second. So just as we're kind of going about our lives, we can pick up on things that last at least half a second. If they're less than half a second in duration, they're too short for the mind to register. It's kind of outside the radar, radar below the noise floor. We can't catch it. So when we come on retreat, this is our starting point. You know, we're able to pick up on experiences that last at least half a second. And the ones that are shorter than that, they kind of fall off uh, the radar. 
But with practice, as mindfulness becomes more continuous, as the concentration builds, and the brain can pick up on briefer and briefer experience, the research shows that for mindfulness meditators on an intensive retreat like this, our attention may operate up to 10 times faster than ordinary levels. This is what the, the scientific research is showing, which is really intriguing. So we, instead of catching things that are half a second long, we may be able to catch things that are 1 20th of a second long, you know, a tenfold increase, which is really dramatic if you think about it in the scheme of things. And we may pick up on this in our practice, just right in our own experience, you know, not that we're measuring, you know, with a stopwatch, like how fast are things going. But there is this sense that the mindfulness speeds up, that the resolution of our perception changes. And we can even get to a point where we're seeing not the beginning, the middle, and the end of things, but just the end, <laughs> just the ending of things, just the constant disappearing of things. And at this point, the ex ex our experience seems to be just change. All it is is change. All it is is flux, this constant flow. That it's, a, it's like a parade in which the, the, the floats never stop in front of the VIP stand. <laughs> they just zip by. You know, more like a high-speed train in which you might not even be able to see the individual cars. It's just all zooming by. It's not still, even for a moment. It may even be hard to say exactly what is, it is worth that we're noticing at this point. It may seem like we can't notice anything because it's all just going by so fast that we can't even catch it. And this level of insight brings a whole other understanding to our, our knowledge about the nature of reality. It brings a much more profound appreciation of just the true magnitude, <laughs> the true scope of impermanence, that absolutely nothing can be held on to. You know, regardless of our desires. This level of seeing impermanence can lead to what's called disenchantment, we, where we feel the impermanence so keenly that we're just completely unable to fool ourselves anymore, that anything can really bring lasting fulfillment or satisfaction because it's all just going before we've even got it. Which brings us to the second universal characteristic of experience, dukkha, which we've already spoken about some here, and which is a little difficult to pin down in the English vocabulary. Um, it's kind of like some other things that we could name. It's, it's kind of hard to define, but we know it when we see it. Um, and as with impermanence, there's also an ordinary level of dukkha that we're all very familiar with what the Buddha often referred to as old age, sickness, and death. This was kind of his shorthand for just everything unpleasant that life dishes up to us. This is uh, one of the traditional formulas for dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unwanted is dukkha. Separation from the wanted is dukkha. Not getting what is wanted is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha, where the five aggregates is just also a term for everything, <laughs> all, all ordinary experience, which uh, Mark is actually going to talk about some more tomorrow night. And again, you know, we don't need to meditate to get this. You know, even little kids know about this. You know, if we just go through life, it becomes very apparent that there's pain. You know, we get what we don't want. We don't get what we do want. 
So the trans tra traditional translation for dukkha, which is suffering, you know, really is a pretty good fit for this level of dukkha, which in the traditional teachings is called dukkha dukkha, <laughs> the suffering of pain, the suffering of unpleasantness. And this dukkha dukkha, you know, it can also be helpful to just notice this, to just take this in, in our lives, in our meditation. Again, as kind of an antidote for this culture of denial that we live in, which puts out this message that, you know, we really ought to be able to get rid of the dukkha dukkha. You know, if we did everything just right, you know, if we managed our lives right, if we took the right pills, you know, if we did the right body work, you know, we ought to be able to stay young, healthy, and in constant pleasure just forever, right? This is the message that uh, our TVs certainly put out. But if we pay attention, you know, we see that this is not how it is. And hopefully what we're learning through our practice is that this is not a personal failing. It's not that we're doing something wrong. It's just the way the universe operates. It's not designed to constantly meet our needs, for better or for worse. You know, as that Zen master Mick Jagger says, you can't always get what you want. <laughs> it's true. So can we practice opening to this a little bit more? And we do practice opening to this here. We have to, because there's just no avoiding it. But just as with impermanence, through meditation, through the power of mindfulness and concentration, when we pass through that doorway of insight, we begin to see aspects of dukkha that are not so obvious at first glance. Aspects that don't fit so well into that definition of suffering or pain, per se. They're more subtle. So we start to see what might better be called unsatisfactoriness, kind of as cumbersome as that word is. Or we might call it vulnerability or insecurity the insecurity of life. We start to see that precisely because of the truth of impermanence, because the parade is constantly passing us by and we can't make it stop, that there's simply no way of getting any lasting satisfaction from any experience, no matter how wonderful. You know, we may have had wonderful moments of experience here on retreat or in our lives, moments of pleasure, of joy, of love, of tranquility, where are they now? <laughs> They're gone. Have we ever had an experience that was so wonderful, so pleasurable? You know, a meal that was so fantastic, a sunset that was so gorgeous, you know, a lovemaking session that was so satisfying that we're like, I'm done. You know, I've had my fill. That's enough. I don't need any more. It doesn't happen. We always need more because it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't really fill that longing for pleasure that we all have. So even the good experiences aren't really good, like not in an ultimate sense, not in a deep sense, because they end. They end. This aspect of dukkha is called viparinama dukkha, which can be translated as the pain of change, or we might think of it too as the pain of pleasure, this irony that there is in life, that even the best experiences in life do not satisfy do not scratch the itch permanently. This one can be hard to see, even if we get it on an intellectual level. And even if we see it, it can be hard to accept. That even within the midst of the most pleasant experiences, there's vulnerability, which is a kind of suffering. Even as we're enjoying ourselves, the experience is evolving. 
and we never really know how it's going to evolve. Maybe there'll be more of the same coming down the channel. Uh, maybe there won't. Maybe things will get worse, but certainly over time it will change. So there's an inherent insecurity, an inherent vulnerability. Those of us who have uh, raised young children or maybe who have pets, there's times when we're really aware of this. So my, my little son, as I said, has just turned three and he's still at that point in his life where he is both extremely cute <laughs> and changing really fast. You know, week by week I can see him changing. And he's just so delightful at this point, you know, his little smiles and his laughter and his kind of childish speech that he's just beginning to develop, the way he expresses himself is just adorable and fills me with delight. And at the same time, I can see him disappearing before my eyes. You know, he's just going, 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 going. And what's coming afterwards is all good. You know, it's not like he's turning into some horrible creature, not yet anyway. <laughs> Maybe in another 10 years. <laughs> But just there's this keen awareness of he's so delightful right now and it's just going even as I watch. A friend of mine who also has young children that are a little bit older than mine now, he's described watching his youngest child grow up as, as like sometimes he felt like he was seeing his last sunset. And it can feel like that when we have really wonderful conditions in our life, really wonderful experiences, still there's this vulnerability that they, they too are going. So this is Viparinama Dukkha, the pain of change. And it's something that we begin to become aware of through our meditation. There's a story, another story from the suttas that I like that kind of illustrates the difference between uh, Dukkha Dukkha and Viparinama Dukkha. This is a story about a goldsmith's son who lived in the time of the Buddha who was a very handsome young man, healthy, strong, uh, who lived in Savati, one of the main cities in northern India. And he had grown up in, his, in and around his father's workshop, you know, apprenticing, as uh, children would do in these days, learning all about the different qualities of gold, how to make all kinds of beautiful ornaments out of it. And one day he was out in the street running errands for his father, and he happened to see the venerable Sariputta, the Buddha's kind of right-hand man, uh, walking on alms round, gathering his one meal for the day. And he was so struck by the nobility and the radiance of the venerable Sariputta's countenance that even without really thinking about it, he just kind of trailed around after him and spoke with him some, and he began to seek him out day after day as he went on his alms round. And eventually he was able to convince his father to allow him to leave home and become a monk under the venerable Sariputta's guidance. Now Sariputta, who was said to be second only to the Buddha in wisdom, reflected that this new monk was very young and very handsome and used to being around beautiful things and was probably very inclined towards craving for sensual pleasures and probably very attached to beauty. So he instructed him and gave him his first meditation instructions uh, to practice a subha bhavana, meditation on the repulsive, uh, these are traditional reflections on the repulsiveness of the body, which in those days would have involved meditating on decaying corpses, really taking in this truth of you know ordinary level of impermanence, really getting it in a deep way, which there are places in Asia where monastics still practice this. 
Sariputta thought that this would be a good way to, to curb the young man's sensual tendencies. And the young monk was very enthusiastic. He was very inspired by his teacher. So he took up this practice, and he followed Sariputta's instructions as best he could. But the months came and went, four months passed, and he hadn't made the slightest progress in his meditation, which surprised the venerable Sariputta quite a lot, because he thought that this would really be what the young monk needed, would really do the trick. But eventually he had to admit that something was not working, so he took the young monk to visit the Buddha, who saw with his psychic power that this person had been a goldsmith for his last 500 existences. <laughs> he was really conditioned. <laughs> and so his mind was understandably very attuned to the qualities of gold. This is what he knew. So the Buddha took a completely different approach with him. Using his supernormal powers, he created a radiant, kind of glowing, magical golden, golden lotus, which he gave to the young monk, saying, here, my son, take this flower, find a comfortable spot to sit and gaze at it, and notice golden, 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 as you contemplate its color. Well, the young monk was delighted with this new meditation. <laughs> compared to what Sariputta had had him doing. <laughs> and he gladly took the flower, and as he sat and looked at it, was completely enthralled and fascinated by its otherworldly beauty, far more beautiful than any you know, ordinary worldly gold that he had seen. And his mind became very concentrated and very still and very peaceful. The Buddha, meanwhile, was keeping tabs on the monk's meditation. And when he saw that the monk was in the right frame of mind, he caused the golden lotus to begin to wither and to fade. And one after another, each petal fell to the ground. And without really thinking about it too much, the young monk got the truth of dukkha, that no matter how beautiful an experience, it's bound to change. Not just that flower, but everything, everything within him, everything around him. And as he contemplated this way, he soon became one of the Arahants, a fully enlightened being, free from all suffering. So I like this story uh, because it also illustrates the importance of finding the right path for each of us. It's not necessarily just looking at you know, the most difficult, the most painful experiences that are out there. But there's more beyond this Viparinama dukkha. If we persevere in our practice, we actually come up eventually against an even deeper layer of dukkha, what's called Sankara dukkha. And this one is the most subtle, the hardest to see, the hardest to really get. Sankara dukkha could maybe be translated as the oppression of existence. So this is not really suffering or pain in the way that we're used to thinking about it. We might call it the burden of experience. We can think of this as just the constant agitation that's inherent in being alive and having a body and having a mind. Having these sense organs that are constantly bombarding us with stimulation and there's no way to shut them off. How many times on this retreat have we wished that we could just flip the button, <laughs> flip the switch and just shut off the mind, shut off the body, get some relief?
we can't do it. You know, we can't decide, well, I've just had enough of smelling. There's some kind of nasty odors right, or going around right now, and it's not too pleasant. I think I'll just take a break from smelling for a little while. We can't just decide, you know, I'm feeling some pain in the body. I think I'll just take a break from that for a little while. The mind's bothering me. I'll just shut it off for a little while. You know, we can negotiate some. There's various ways we can try to squirm our way out of unpleasant experience. We can negotiate some. We can go to sleep. We can take various substances to try to numb the mind. But in the end, there's no escaping from experience itself. Whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, even if there's good experience, there's still no way to get away from it if it's just agitating. This is Sankara Dukkha, the oppression of experience. And it may be quite a while before we can really connect with this. It usually comes out of deep, sustained concentration, and it's said to be very close to enlightenment, when we can see on this level. So through insight, we come to understand impermanence on deeper and subtler levels over time. We come to understand suffering on deeper and subtler levels over time. And we may also come to see anatta, this third universal characteristic of experience, which is sometimes translated as no-self or non-self or emptiness, is often used in the Zen tradition or in personality. And I just want to touch on this one very briefly because it can sound very heady. But it's just simply the understanding that there's not really any puppet master (laughs) orchestrating this whole thing that we call our lives, that we call our experience. You know, there's no master of ceremonies at the head of the parade that's orchestrating it all, calling up this experience and then that one and then sending them down the, the runway to us. There's no little mini-me somewhere embedded in the brain you know, that's the controlling faculty that's in charge of everything, that's running the show. Some of you may have seen, it was a lot of years ago now, but the, I think it was the first Men in Black movie you know, where there's the special men in black agents that are in, in charge of, like, uh, policing alien activity on the Earth. <laughs> and there's this one alien at the beginning of the movie who he looks kind of like an elderly Italian gentleman um, who's being pursued by some other hostile alien. And the men in black guys are trying to, to rescue him. And they get to him just as he's kind of like, he's been shot or something and he's dying on the ground. And they uh, flip a little switch on the side of his head and open the whole thing up. And there's a little tiny little alien on the inside <laughs> with lots of levers and buttons and things, you know, that's been controlling the, the elderly Italian gentleman, <laughs> which I thought was just a great Dharma image because it can, we can have that idea, you know, we don't consciously, you know, literally think that. But we can have this idea that somewhere in here, somewhere, there's some part of us that is like really us. That's the, the part of us that's the real us. It's the part of us that's really in charge of any, everything, that's really experiencing everything. That's kind of the essence of us. You know, some people might call it soul or self or whatever, but it's the sense that there's really some core to what's going on here rather than just seeing, hearing, tasting, telling, you know, smelling, touching, and cognizing. And really, we don't have to be on retreat very long to get this, although we often don't realize that we're getting this. But, you know, pain shows up in the body, experiences that we don't want. Why? You know, did we invite them? You know, did we orchestrate this, you know, unfolding of events? No, it just happens due to causes and conditions. 
Same thing as in the mind. You know, we see very quickly that we are not in control. <laughs> we are not running the show. Things come due to causes and conditions. Sometimes we have some influence. Sometimes we don't. I remember very clearly the first time I saw this in retreat, in a long retreat like this. And it was a very simple experience. It was just one thought arose, ran its course, and then ended. Just that, just one thought. I saw the beginning, I saw it arise, I saw it run its course, and I saw it end. Entirely out of my control. <laughs> it was a moment of, just a very brief mo few moments, of, but I really saw, the mind really connected. Oh, I didn't do that. I didn't make that happen. It wasn't me. It just happened. This is how we see uh, the characteristic of emptiness or no self. It's just that simple. So through the insight into anatta, or non-self, we see that this changing parade of experience is really impersonal. It's not the work of some all-powerful Oz, <laughs> some organizing principle that's in there somewhere. It's just due to causes and conditions. So there's these three universal characteristics that we come to see through our practice. Impermanence, suffering or vulnerability, and impersonality or lack of control. And each of these insights may at times be exhilarating. At other times, they may be horrifying. <laughs> it depends on what perspective we're seeing them from. At times, we may see them in ways that really bring a sense of lightness, liberation, freedom. There might be a sense of setting down the burden, uh, being able to make our way through life more easily. At other times, we may see them in a way that seems very oppressive, very, very depressing. It may be very difficult to swallow or to accept some of these truths, these deeper truths that we see through our practice. We sometimes use the metaphor of a falling skydiver to explain these different attitudes towards insight. So at first, when the skydiver jumps out of the plane, um, it's fine. You know, it may be exciting. It may be a little scary. But there's a sense that, oh, I've got the... the um, uh, I've got the ripcord on my back that I can pull and let the parachute out when I've had enough. You know, I can put the brakes on when I've had enough. But then when we pull the ripcord, we discover that the parachute doesn't come out. <laughs> so then panic really sets in. Like, oh no, I'm done for. This is horrible. This is awful. But eventually, at some point, we realize that even though we have no parachute, there's also no ground. <laughs> there's nothing to hit. So then we can just start to relax, okay? It's just falling, falling, falling. This is what it is. <laughs> so this kind of captures the different relationships that we can have to insight. You know, sometimes it may be very exhilarating. Sometimes it may be very fearful. Eventually, if we persevere in the practice, we arrive at a, we arrive at a place of equanimity, of acceptance, of just being in the free fall that is really the truth of what's going on here. So insight is about recognizing anicca, dukkha, anatta, and also about coming to terms with those, learning to relax into them, which is an ongoing process. So we take in what we can at the right time, as we're able. And then we'll also need time to process, to integrate what we've seen, to bring it into our lives in a way that is graceful and meaningful. In Zen mind, beginner's mind, Suzuki Roshi says, that things change is the reason why you suffer in this world and become discouraged. But when you change your understanding and your way of living, then you can completely enjoy your life in each moment. The effinescence of things is the reason you enjoy your life. So 
let's sit for a moment. Thus shall you think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.